Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Selwyn Heidi, here today with the Reverend David Apple to talk about Hebrews, or at least continuing our conversation in Hebrews. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Zelwyn. Good to be on with you. It is. Willie can't be with us today because of technical issues, but we'll press F for him anyway, right? Yeah, many times, many times. <laughs> we'll have him back soon enough. How is the weather down in Paducah? It's cold. The frigid winter is upon us. I had to wear my my winter coat today. I even had to put gloves on. I think it's down around 40 degrees. So I'm cooped up in my office trying to stay warm. Yeah. No, I hear you, fam. When we woke up this morning, it was about negative 15. So kind (laughs) of two different parts of the country, I think. But then again, I live in the tundra anyway. So yeah, I, I mean, I've gotten used to this is my fifth year being in Kentucky, and I do, I mean, I miss the the snow kind of in theory. I don't actually miss it, but I, the idea of it is still attractive to me. <laughs> the idea of having snow on the ground. Do you, right. Do you have any snow right now or not? Not right now. It snowed, it snowed one time, and I think school closed. I think we had maybe an inch, inch and a half, maybe maybe two inches. It'll snow a few times every winter, but it, it's usually gone within two days. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we have about eight inches on the ground right now. So I'm basically describing the, the North Pole, I understand. but Sure, permafrost is a reality <laughs> for you. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, David, we should continue our discussion of Hebrews. And we kind of left off talking about some of the chapters of Hebrews and talking about the overall supremacy of Christ. So where do you want to pick up with our discussion again? Well, yeah, last time we we talked about a wide number, kind of the isagogical things, right? Authorship and mm-hmm. dates and kind of outline, and we, and we got into it a little bit into uh, kind of the first the first little section there where Jesus is compared to the angels, and he is said to be higher than the angels, and I think that 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 really sets the tone for the rest of the book in that you know, Paul, or if, you know, maybe you don't want to say that Paul wrote it. If you don't want to, you can go listen to our first Hebrews episode and see why you should say that. But um, (laughs) whoever the author may be is going to go on from angels. Then he talks about Moses and how Jesus is greater than Moses. He talks about Joshua. So it's almost like he's going through kind of the major figures of the Old Testament. And he's just drawing some, some various typological connections between the Old Testament figures and Christ. And the, of course, the continual theme is that Christ is greater than these Old Testament leaders and, and uh, people. So I, we could go into any of those if you'd like to. Zelwyn, the, the big one that he's going to end up with and that we really want to talk about today is Christ and the priests of the Old Testament. Right. And we'll we'll get to that point soon enough. But the question I think we should ask at this point is, you know, what is Paul's purpose 
in writing this, you know, why does he make this argument the way that he does? Why is he continuously trying to show the supremacy of Christ and then ultimately the supremacy of his priesthood? I mean, what's what's his goal? Yeah, the goal is to emphasize the that something better has come. Right? I mean, that's the that's the purpose of emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus is to say whatever benefits were derived in the Old Testament, we have something far better. So it's it's a greater confidence or a greater benefit has come. I mean, we're we're speaking here kind of in terms of the historical accomplishment of salvation. It's not like they that in the New Testament we receive a different grace than they had in the Old Testament. But there is a, a difference in terms of a greater revelation, right? What, what, how else could we say it, Zelwyn? The finality of the revelation that we are, this is what it's all been pointing towards. So why would you want to hold on to that which came before? I mean, it's kind of like holding on to your ticket to the concert instead of actually going into the concert and saying you have the better deal. I mean, just to use a metaphor. <laughs> One of my favorite parables is the wineskins, right? Jesus mm-hmm. says, uh, no one pours new wine in the old wineskins, but new wine needs new wineskins. And so that's, that's a great way to think of old and new. The Old Testament was, was never meant to be permanent. Right. It was meant to be there for a time. And, and all the institutions of old, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, those all served a purpose for a time. But now the time of, you know, the fulfillment has come. And so the old things fade away. They're perishing is how Hebrews says it. And the new stuff has come. And I, I think it's also worth saying here that Paul's main audience, at least originally, and by, I mean, by all means, we can certainly profit from this and to see his argument. But I think his main audience was just that. It's just the Hebrews themselves. You know, he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience probably who are maybe sitting on the fence in terms of what to think of Jesus. You know, so I do think that there's also a a kind of evangelistic tone to this whole yeah. Ep- yeah. epistle. You know, let go of the, the past because it was never meant to be permanent and turn towards that which it was actually pointing towards in the first place. And I mean, that whole era of kind of the apostolic age is, is really, I think it's fascinating to I think everybody would agree that it's kind of fascinating, but you think about going from say you're say you're a Jewish Christian, right. right? What think about what you have to leave behind. The temple was magnificent, right? And the the priesthood. I mean, these are all very phys- visible, tangible things. And I know that's the way we talk about our sacraments, but in some way, I mean, if you're a <laughs> if you're a Jewish Christian and you go from you know the sacrifices of bulls and goats and and everything in the temple and now you're being told you know hey you know we have something better and you're like oh great show me i'm like well it's invisible you know it's kind of <laughs> like okay um that's a that's a big ask right right and even uh, and i think the same would be true for the greek right if you're if you're a, a greek i'm i'm sure that there were other kinds of religious options, but the two big options are Judaism or, uh, you know, some sort of Greek religion. And all of the Greeks have temples and priests and sacrifices. And if you want to worship the gods, it's all very tangible, physical kind of worship, right? right? And the Christian route 
is going to call for something different, it it doesn't shock me that there would be sort of a, oh, is this all there is? You're not going to show me a, you know, a real altar? You know, they had altars, but there's it's a totally different kind of worship than the sacrifices of the Greeks or the Jews. Well, and you could even apply that into our own situation today when someone coming into the church might seem kind of, you know, underwhelmed by whatever it is that they are coming from, you know, like maybe a Christian coming from another denomination into, say, the Lutheran church, or even someone who's becoming a Christian for the first time. You know, some of these things don't seem all that impressive, at least on their face. (laughs) But when you get down to it, what we have is the the fullness of it, you know, the, the we have access to God through Jesus Christ in a way that the Old Testament never knew, you know, that right. these are the things that they longed to see and did not see, but blessed are your eyes because you see them. And so, yeah, there is this kind of scandal to it in a way, you know, that it doesn't seem all that impressive. But I think the the point of Hebrews is saying, yes, but we are actually entering into the greater and the eternal things, the things which will not pass away. And for that reason, they are, you know, more important. I mean, as we're talking about this, the verse that I think a lot of people will know from Hebrews 11, verse one, faith is the conviction of things not seen, right? right? So especially in the context of Hebrews, here we're talking about the unseen, you know, you don't see the heavenly side of of any of this stuff. You just see, like you said, that's a great point, Zelwyn. People come into our churches and, you know, we're telling them all these wonderful things about how God comes to us and how he speaks to us and how we receive his body and blood. And then, you know, you come on a Sunday morning and you see Zell and Heidi, you know, reading from the Bible from, you know, just some podium, you know, does it really look all that impressive? Now, I mean, you're, you have the beard at least, Zelwyn. I don't, know, I don't have that, but we can dress <laughs> ourselves up in all the vestments. But at the end of the day, I think it's always going to be a bit of a, there's a, di- there's a disconnect, right? Between what the eye sees and what we're telling people is happening. Right. And so faith as the conviction of the unseen things, well, in Hebrews, that means you're, you're convinced that there's a, a heavenly access that's open to us through Christ. Right. And an access that will never go away. Because unlike the old, which is passing away, that which is now coming will never pass away. And so for that reason, yeah, you have a finality to it. You have the supremacy of it. And so, you know, pay attention to what it is that God is saying. Yeah, good point. In our last episode, we didn't really talk about too much about some of these I don't know, severe passages or um, <laughs> troubling, you know, they they make us uncomfortable right. because they speak with such finality, right? If if you reject this stuff, there's nothing else coming that can convert you. Right. And that's, that's how I read, you know, the passage like if six, where it says it is impossible to restore again, those who have fallen away. Well, the impossibility is consists in the fact that if, if you are not convicted, convinced by the word of God, I'm sorry, I don't have anything else. You know, I don't have anything better to offer you. Right? <laughs> and that's, that's exactly what it says in Hebrews 10 too. If we go on sinning, the, the son of God is not going to come back and offer another sacrifice. Right. But he, the sacrifice is once and for all. That's another great Hebrews language here. And to reject that 
is to reject the only hope, the final hope. Yeah. And I mean, and like you say, that's ultimately the point here is saying that if you think that something more impressive is going to come along, something that's going to be more in tune with what you know already, well, you you are essentially re-crucifying the Son of God. You are, you know, turning away from him and spurning him because this is how he has come and come and, and chosen to appear to us. This is the the fullness. This is the revelation. And there is a a, a life and death quality to mm-hmm. what Jesus has come to say. And maybe and maybe that's what people kind of struggle with, and that's what we kind of don't like all that much. You know, we we want more of a, a propositional kind of a you know come and try it kind of feel to it, whereas the revelation itself is basically saying, you know, this is you know Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Apart yeah. from Him, there is no salvation. Remember when when Paul preaches in Athens, and he's He's preaching, 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 and then he finally mentions the resurrection of the dead and how God has the conclusion that he draws from that is that this man, Jesus, is going to be the judge of all. Mm-hmm. And so it's time to repent. <laughs> and uh, some of the Greeks, of course, just say, you know, they laugh at him. And others say, you know, that's interesting. Let's consider it. Just like you said a minute ago, kind of, let's see, let's kind of weigh this out and, and think about it. But Paul just leaves, right? And it does say that there were some who went with him. Right. And and so I think that that's, that really is, that kind of urgency does come with the preaching of God's word. And, you know, when we grow accustomed to, you know, Jesus has ascended and someday he's going to come back, but I don't know when it's going to be. And it seems like it could be a, a long time. You kind of get used to not being quite so urgent. And so then you read Hebrews and it's talking with such striking, like, this is it. You know, right. this is the last, this is the last boat. And this is the one you got, you got to get on this one. Um, <laughs> I think we, we've lost a little bit of that in our time. And yeah, now is the, the hour of salvation, you know, now is the favorable yeah. time. So, yeah. Yeah, no. And I think that is the, that is a real temptation for us in the, you know, the current year like you say, waiting for the return of Christ to be just become complacent and to say, you know, well, there's always going to be more time. But the truth be told, there is no sign of the coming end. You know, it, it will catch us by surprise like a thief in the night. And so, yes, there is an urgency which says, take it or leave it. This is it. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's the way Here's the way Hebrews says it, just so that you hear this in the Hebrews tongue. chapter 2 verse 1 so it's right after he's finishing up his point about Jesus being greater than the angels it says therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it right and so I think in that in that one little verse you have a great the the way we kind of started this discussion is what's kind of the what why is why is Paul going into Jesus being supreme and one the important part here is both the supreme confidence that comes from that, right? Recognizing the fullness of what's come in Jesus and also the, the supreme kind of urgency or the calling for faith and trust and seriousness about this stuff. It's not just think about it for a little while and let me know <laughs> next week <laughs> how you're, how you're thinking. It's like, this is it. This is it. 
Yeah. Well, and you actually should have continued a little bit with your, your quotation there in chapter two, because I think it really encapsulates it when it says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Yeah. You know, how are, how are you going to get off the hook if they didn't get off the hook before? And that just came through angels. But now you've heard it from Jesus himself, from the actual word of God, the very son of the father. You've heard it from his mouth. <laughs> the, 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 the stakes have been raised. You know, this is, this is yeah. all in. This is not just, you know, calling <laughs> in terms yeah, no, of No, that's great. <laughs> right? No, that's, I think that's right on. That's right on. That's a good way to put it. Well, very good, David. Well, in the last part of this section, then, we want to probably start talking about that final comparison or the, one of the, the major comparisons of the book of Hebrews of the, the priesthood of Christ and how that compared with the, the Aaronic and the Levitical priests. So do you want to start, first of all, with talking about what we mean by the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood? So when we're talking about Christ's priestly office, well, maybe go back one step. The, the term Christ this is probably remedial stuff, but it's worth saying just so, so we're all on the same page. Christ means the anointed one, right? Right. And the anointed ones in the Old Testament are primarily kings and priests. Right. Now, the, pro- the prophet is anointed in the sense of like anointed by the spirit. But I don't recall, and you can correct me, Zelwyn, but I don't recall the, the prophets being anointed with oil ever. But I, I could be mistaken on that. No, I, I think you're right in that. But kings and priests were. And so the priestly office or the priestly part of Christ's work is connected with this. Uh, he's the anointed one. And I think even in the Old Testament, the priests are called, you know, messiahs, small m, if you will, mm-hmm. messiahs. The comparison that he's setting up here is, okay, uh, we're going to kind of review what was the work of the Old Testament priests mm-hmm. and how has Christ raised the stakes to use your <laughs> your language, Zelwyn? <laughs> how has he upped the ante here on what the priests did in the Old Testament and what his priesthood is? And there's, there's a, a point of comparison, but there's also a disconnect. And so he's going to say, you know, the Aaronic priesthood gives you a picture, but there's an even, there's a different priesthood from the Old Testament and that's the priesthood of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. And that becomes kind of the, the bigger umbrella that Jesus's priesthood is connected to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is it that priests do in the Bible? What is, what is their calling? You know, what is, because we have to start with the basic, like, you know, what is it that a priest does if we're going to understand what it is that Christ is doing? Because we're saying he is the greater priest. So what, yeah. what do we mean by a priest in the biblical sense? The priests are the ones who are called and who are consecrated or ordained to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Mm -hmm. And then also they, this is kind of the second half of their work, is to offer the blessing of God to the people. So they're representative figures. I think they're, you can, you can think of them as mediators. They mediate between the people and God, and then also between God and the people. So in the daily service, the priests are the ones, the only ones allowed into the temple. They offer the sacrifice at the altar. They go into the temple to offer the prayers on behalf of the people. And then they come back out from the temple and speak for God 
and give his you know his blessing to his people yeah and that that dual office of sacrificing and intercession we will see is one of the key points that is going to really define what we mean by the priesthood of christ but we're going to go into our first break so we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. And we are back as Elwin Heidi, David Apple, talking about Hebrews and specifically the priesthood in the Bible. So we left off talking about priests in general, but we probably also want to talk about in in this discussion, David, you know, how does one become a priest in, in the scriptures? You know, how does one qualify to be a priest? You know, what what separates a priest in the biblical sense from the rest of the people? Yeah, there's actually quite a few laws in the Old Testament. I think it's in Leviticus about the physical characteristics and there are certain defects and, and other things that can exclude you from the priesthood. But even more basic than that, the priesthood in the Old Testament was genetic. You had to be a, a son of Aaron or a descendant, a male descendant from Aaron's family. So if you think of the 12 tribes, Aaron is part of the tribe of Levi, and there's certainly some some overlap in the priestly duties between what the priests do and what the Levites do, but the Levites are a later thing, and the priests are instituted by God to be from the offspring of Aaron. So you had to be, first and foremost, a son of Aaron, and then even within that kind of subset of Israel, you also had to be, you couldn't have any, no blemishes, put it that way. And right. if, if you were, if you qualified both of those things, then you could become a priest through the, the process, the rite of ordination or consecration, which is laid out in, in Exodus and I think Leviticus too. What's the purpose of the excluding on the basis of like physical defects or excluding on the basis of even say spiritual defects, you know, what, what's the purpose of why do, why do the priests have to be holy in that sense? I'll, I'll load the question for you there. Sure. It's the same. It's a similar thing to why the sacrifices have to be without blemish. So the prophets will, will blast Israel. I think Malachi is a great place for this where the people are offering the, the very worst of their, of their livestock in the sacrifices to God. And it's the same idea with the priesthood is that the, 
the men who are offering the sacrifices are to be holy because God is holy. And if you're going to go into God's holy presence and offer the holy sacrifices, there there can be no defect. And I think that's part partly too why the the vestments are made a big deal out of in the book of Exodus. The the man is to be without blemish and even with that, he's also to be robed in the clothing that God provides to cover over his unholiness. Right. Well, and also in in that connection too, you have like the the sons of Aaron who offer up strange fire, unauthorized fire, however you want to translate it, and are killed as a result of it. So just, you know, being a son of Aaron is not being separated enough. There is also this, you know, actually being Mm -hmm. spiritually Mm -hmm. holy. You think you think of the sons of uh, Eli, for example, in the days of Samuel, and how they were, you know, taking more of it than they were supposed to from the sacrifices, and also committing adultery with some of the the Levite women who who were near the temple, and God casts off that um, them from being priests from before Him. So yes, there there is a sense in which they have to be morally upright and perfect in that sense, so that they are able to stand before an all-holy God. Yeah. And they're also, to go back to what we said before, the priest is the representative of the people. So when right. you're when you're being represented by the priest, he's going in, and in a sense, he's carrying you with him. You want a priest who is without blemish, right? You don't want, <laughs> you don't want to send, you know, the very worst of the people into the holy places of God, because he's carrying you with him. And so that, that wouldn't, wouldn't fly. But it's maybe we should emphasize this point. It's all according to the legal arrangement of God, right? This right. is all prescribed in God's law. Right. And I, the reason I bring that up, Zelwyn, is because what happens in Hebrews is he says, Jesus doesn't fit that bill, does he? He's not a son of Aaron. And so right. his his priesthood, even though we can see some points of comparison, the priesthood of Jesus is distinct from the priesthood of Aaron and his sons. Right. And so Paul has to go on to talk about, you know, how can then can we call Jesus the greater priest when he seems to be, seems to be being the key word here, lacking in one key respect, like you say, the, the physical descent. But I think it's also worth, before we delve into that here real quick, it's also worth saying that when you're dealing with the the legal requirements of the priesthood, you know, that they have to be upright, that they have to be descent, you know, genetically a certain way, that sort of thing. All of this is looking forward to Christ himself, you yeah. know, and that's something that we can't overlook. This isn't just being legal for the sake of being legal, and you got to make sure that you're just checking all the boxes here. These boxes, so to speak, are looking forward to Jesus Christ himself, who is the fulfillment of this priesthood, the thing that is passing away. So you're saying, Zelwyn, that the law itself and components of the law are typical of Christ? Huh. Weird, huh? Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) I don't know about that. I'm with you. No, I think that's right. That's a great point to make because otherwise you, you have this idea of a haphazard sort of you know, God slapping together the resume for the priest without any connection to Christ. You know, you get great passages like Galatians, which says that the law, and by which, you know, you're left kind of wondering, well, what parts of the law 
Paul, but the law is the the pedagogue that leads us to Christ. And so even in the the requirements about the priest, you're seeing a shadow of of Jesus, who is the greater priest. And as we'll see eventually in this conversation too, the actions of the priests in the Old Testament actually point towards what Jesus is doing. And so we can learn something about what Jesus has done for us through their actions as well. But we'll get to that. So, But first, we got to deal with this seeming problem of yeah. Jesus priesthood and that is that he's not actually a descendant of of Aaron he's not a levite but he's actually descended from Judah you know a son of David so how does how does hebrews resolve this seeming dilemma yeah i mean and you can just imagine the jews at the time of at the time of christ and especially in the apostolic age saying look why would you you know he he cannot offer the sacrifice you know you you mentioned the sons of Aaron who offered unauthorized fire well Jesus isn't even a son of Aaron so whatever he offers isn't going to be good right and yeah. so in in Hebrews this is the place for bringing up Melchizedek so Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest not after the order of Aaron but after the order of Melchizedek which opens up a huge, you know, <laughs> a, a huge new thing for us. Right. Well, okay, so we have to ask the question, who is Melchizedek and where does where is he talked about in the Old Testament? Yes, Genesis 14, in a, it's a brief kind of encounter, isn't it, between Abram, I think he's still Abram at that point, and yes. it's after he's been called, he goes and he has to save his nephew Lot from various and sundry kings and he wins a war, he saves his nephew, and then he runs into, it seems like he just <laughs> runs into the king of Salem, who's called Melchizedek. And so then the encounter between Abram and Melchizedek suddenly becomes one of one man gives another a gift, and the other man blesses him. And so one of the things that Hebrews brings out is it's evident, isn't it, that the lesser will give a sacrifice to the greater or give a gift to the greater. And so you look back in Genesis 14 and who's giving who a gift? Well, it's Abram giving a tenth to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is greater. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram. This is a fascinating thing that Paul says in Hebrews. He says, and it is as if Levi the father of Aaron, in the loins of Abram is offering sacrifices or offering a gift to the greater priest, Melchizedek. Yeah, we need to unpack that one like a lot. Yeah, so, have, I, have I opened up enough different cans there for you, Zoe? Yeah, I think we got we to gotta start, you know, whacking the moles down here. So the, I, think, I think maybe the first place to start with this is the person of Melchizedek and the reason why he becomes so important for this discussion is because in Genesis 14, verse 18, he's called the priest of God Most High. And so he is a priest, and because he's being called the priest of God, he is of an order of priesthood that precedes Levi. And that's Paul's point in yeah. Hebrews, is that this priesthood, because it's being demonstrated in the days of Abraham, and it's a legitimate priesthood. You know, Melchizedek is legitimately a, a priest of God. This priesthood doesn't fall under that genetic requirement. 
And in fact, it's actually superior to it because, which is the point in Hebrews, Abram gave, you know, the the tenth gave the tithe to Melchizedek, the the inferior to the superior. So that was the direction. If it had been the other way around, then the argument couldn't be made, right? right. Yeah. And the the idea there, just to go a little bit further, the Levites were the ones who always received the tenth or the tithe from the, their brothers in Israel. Right. So what right. Hebrews is doing then is saying, and look, you know, Levi in the loins, you know, he was not even born yet, but he was in the in the loins of Abram, so to speak. He was giving the tenth to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek has a greater priesthood. Yeah, well, and it's also, and this is the other the other can of worms that you opened that I think is worth unpacking here, at least for a few minutes. This isn't just, well, this came before in time, and so neener, neener, boo-woo, we win because we were earlier. You know, people unfortunately argue that way all too often, saying, you know, we're the ones who are here first, or, you know, we're, we're the original whatever, you know, insert whatever sure. you want sure. to try to lay claim to, because, you know, we were before them. Well, no, the point is, is that Abram... Levi is in Abram because Abram is the head of that of Israel, right? So that because he is the father of of Isaac and Isaac is the father of Jacob and Jacob becomes the father of Levi, Abram becomes the spiritual head of the people. And the reason why that's important to bring out is because we also talk about this in connection with, say, sin, and you have like that great passage in Romans talking about Adam being our head, you know, then we, as long as we are still in that head, as long as we are still in that body, we are in Adam. And as a result, we are suffering the, the judgment of Adam, which is death and, you know, being judged for our sins. But when we take on that new headship in Christ, we become saved. All of this is to say that is that Levi, because his head is Abram because he is part of that body. And that body as a whole gave the tithe to Melchizedek, you know, the inferior to the superior. Melchizedek represents that greater priesthood. And the other spot that's crucial in the Old Testament is in the Psalms. Is it Psalm 110? Mm-hmm. I think it is where, yes. you know, this is the great Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, you have the Lord... God the Father, saying to my Lord, David's Lord, God the Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you have this explicitly, this explicit connection that the Messiah will be a priest, not according to the priesthood of Aaron, but according to that of Melchizedek. And that's that's what Hebrews, that's the verse Hebrews brings up to say, this is the way it was prophesied to be you know we're not making up it's not like we just discovered some kind of easter egg here you know and said oh you know there was this old priest in the old testament no it was an oath that god had made to jesus the son right well and psalm 110 is probably the most quoted psalm in the book of hebrews for that very reason and this this order of melchizedek and this priest forever i mean this is a description of christ and Christ himself even points to this psalm in his dispute with the Pharisees. You know, who, you know, the, the Christ, you know, whose son is he? You know, the son of David. Well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, you know, saying, and then he quotes Psalm 110. So this, so Psalm 110 really is the, the key here to understanding this, this transition in the argument and really the, the whole superiority of Christ, period. 
Yeah. So then we can compare, if you think of Aaron and Melchizedek as representing two different kinds of priesthood, put it that way. Right. The priesthood represented by Aaron is is temporary because the sons, Aaron and his sons, all die, right? Now, right. this is going to raise a different question, Zowen, but <laughs> Melchizedek, there's no mention of him dying, right? Right. And that's one of the things Hebrews says, and I don't think that that's meant to be taken in the sense of he he lived on forever, but he becomes a representative of a continuing priesthood, right? In enduring a permanent and eternal priesthood. Because what it says in Hebrews is he is without beginning of days and without end of days. So there's no genealogy tied to him like there is tied to Aaron. And there's also right. no end tied to him like there is, we know, how Aaron died. Is that Mount Ebal, I think, right? Right, right. So he becomes representative then to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek is to be an eternal priest. Yeah, to be unique in that sense, because we don't hear of Melchizedek passing on his priesthood to a successor like we do with Aaron. And so for that reason, after the order of Melchizedek, Christ is a unique priest in the sense that he is basically without peer. Yeah. You know, he is, (laughs) he is, he is totally, totally set off by himself, totally holy and everything that the Aaronic priesthood was pointing towards, but in and of itself could not be. Yeah. Now think of think of this too. Okay. We talked before how did a how did a man become a priest in the Old Testament? You had to be of the lineage of Aaron and you had to be consecrated and ordained according to the law. Right. Well, one of Hebrews' points is that Jesus is a priest not according to the legal requirement, but by oath. Right? He is he is sworn to be priest. And I think that one of the things that Hebrews is doing there is that it's it's elevating the priesthood of Jesus above and beyond the the legal priesthood of the you know Aaronic priests. So why is how does Jesus become this priest after Melchizedek by the oath of God, which is in the sense of Hebrews is superior. And this is not to denigrate the law, right? right. But it's it is a better thing to be a priest by oath than by legal requirement. And to put it in a little bit different language, we would perhaps you could say he's a priest by promise there, as there opposed to by, by legal requirement. You know, God has promised that this would be the case, and he fulfilled that promise in his son, Jesus Christ. And as a result, yes, like you say, the, the legal priesthood was still a great thing and it was still God's will and it was still a blessing, but it ultimately came to nothing because the, the promise, which is, you know, precedes the, the law ultimately goes on forever. Yeah, and this I mean this this is a great way to think of the difference between Old and New Testament. It's not that the Old Testament was bad, right? When we talk about it <laughs> it being old, right? The that's the idea, at least I get this idea and I I hear other people say it that old the old stuff is it was all law and it was all bad therefore, right? Right. right. Hebrews never says it that way even though it it talks about the new being better than the old. It's not, it, that's not to denigrate the old other than to say it was never meant to keep on going. And so he establishes the new and lets the old pass away. He establishes what's permanent and what's temporary then just by the nature of it is going to fade away. Yeah. 
God wasn't playing gotcha with the Old Testament. He was just putting in place something that was transient. Yeah, the, right. And and that's what I, I said this early on, that it's it it's not a different grace that's brought to us by Christ. It's the same grace. It's the same, the, the promise of the forgiveness of sins that's there in the Old Testament and applied through the sacrifices received by faith in the Old Testament order of things, the old arrangement of that grace has been transcended by the new arrangement, which is which will not pass away. Well, I think that brings us to our second break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Appold, continuing our discussion on the book of Hebrews, and in particular, the priesthood of Christ. So we got done talking about, you know, what constitutes a priest, you know, how you become a priest, all, and all of those relationships between Melchizedek and Christ. But we need to move on to another important question when it comes to being a priest, and that is, where does a priest be a priest. You know, where does he carry out his duties? Yeah, the so in the Old Testament, the venue or the arena, if you want to think, I like to put it that way, the arena of the priest <laughs> is the tabernacle originally, and then later the temple. But in Hebrews, I think, doesn't he focus? Yeah, he focuses on the tent or, right. or the tabernacle. But everything that's said about the tent, of course, can also be translated into temple terms too. And so the Aaronic priests operate in and carry out their duties in connection with the tabernacle on earth. And what Hebrews goes on to say is, well, just as Jesus is a priest of a higher order, the order of Melchizedek, he also has a higher arena or a better arena. He is a priest who serves in heaven. And so right. the the connection there then is that the, the tabernacle was just a copy of the heavenly places and Christ is not confined to the earthly copy, but he actually goes into the heavenly sanctuary and brings us access into that heavenly place. Right. Well, and Hebrews also makes a big deal out of the arrangement of the tabernacle itself and how that like, actually makes a difference in terms of what, you know, the, the old versus the new. And what, what, how is the, the tabernacle set up, David? Well, you have the various zones, right? And there's all the furniture within the tabernacle. But do you mean like, where did Moses get the idea of how to arrange it? 
No, I mean the actual arrangement. I mean, we already you already mentioned the the, the heavenly copy, and you know it was oh. showed to you on the mountain and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm talking about the actual setup of the tabernacle because that actually makes a difference for what it means to be an earthly priest and also what it means to be Christ, the heavenly priest. Gotcha. Okay, so the tabernacle has an arrangement of kind of three basic zones, the way that I kind of usually think of it. At the center most, we'll start the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, is the zone of God's most direct presence. So that is where the Ark of the Covenant sits, the throne of God sits in the Holy of Holies, and no one goes in there except the high priest, and then he only goes in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. The The other zones that are connected then have the most holy place, then the holy place, the priest can go in there every day, and this is like the front porch of God's house, if you will. He's in the Holy of Holies, but the priest can go into the holy place every day and offer the incense and the the prayers on behalf of Israel every morning and every evening. And then continuing out from there, you have the, the altar, which is the actual place where the people are allowed to come up to the altar. And uh, they, they can't go onto the altar, but they can, can basically be kind of at the foot of the altar. And that's where the sacrifice is actually made, the, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And outside of that then is the general, the courtyard of the tabernacle. And that's where there would have been all kinds of, well, in the temple, there's all kinds of rooms. And that would have been, I think, where Jesus conducted a lot of his teaching ministry when he was in Jerusalem. Right, right. And so, yeah, and so with this this transition between areas or zones or whatever you want to call it, you have, an, at least in the old arrangement, in the Old Testament, an increasing number of, well, I don't know how you want to put it, restrictions. Like you just, you can't, you can't just waltz into the most holy place and expect to live. <laughs> Correct. That's just not how it worked. But like with the, the outermost part, with the, the altar of sacrifice, you know, it was sacrifice which provided the entrance into that middle area, the area with the furniture, the area with the incense, the, the daily a- a part of a priest's service. But it was only that once a year, every year, that he went in, that the high priest only went into the most holy place. Now, with that, and trying to understand that whole arrangement then, how is Christ superior to this arrangement because obviously this we don't have this in place anymore this isn't how god is continuing to deal with us what is it that christ has done in the the most in the heavenly tabernacle in the heavenly places that brings an end to this arrangement yeah so there's a couple ways i think to think of it but the i think the the best way that it's brought out in hebrews is think of the 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 annual and even the daily Reoffering of sacrifices by the priests, right? So right. Uh, the Aaronic priests have to continually offer more and more sacrifices. And what Hebrews says is that's that's an indication for us that those sacrifices couldn't actually accomplish what they were kind of foreshadowing, right? They if you if you really did offer an effective sacrifice, you wouldn't have to do it again. Right. Right, um, but right. even even the the big sacrifice on say the day of atonement or on Passover, those are annual things that have to reoccur every year, every year, every year. And so that just by nature of 
it reoccurring indicates it's not actually accomplishing the job, so to speak. Now, again, I would emphasize that certainly God's grace is active in the Old Testament, and he institutes all of these sacrifices. So there is an actual, you know, God's word is connected to these things. But they also are prophetic of, and they're pointing forward to the, the true sacrifice that doesn't need to be repeated anymore. And so this is where the great Hebrews word, this is, this is a word that we should all know once and for all, Christ has gone in not to a copy, but he has gone into the heavenly place and he offers once and for all himself, his own body as a sacrifice for sins. And that sacrifice is no longer in need of, you know, there's no annual reoccurring sacrifice being offered. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and really that point that you were making about the imperfect sacrifices before, I mean, this is how God taught his people. We don't want to think of these things as just being vain repetition or, you know, just being totally empty and devoid of all meaning. And it's a good thing we finally got rid of them or, you know, that it's just, it's just whatever. Now, this is how God was teaching his people day in and day out. And especially on the big feasts, you know, once a year, that this was how he was actually going to redeem them, that it would only be through the shedding of blood that they would gain access into the temple. And it would only be through that access, through the the high priest, in this case, Christ, carrying his own blood into the heavenly places, that we would gain access to, to God, an access that we didn't have because of our sins. And so this kind of this pedagogical nature, this teaching nature of the sacrifices over and over again is what God is doing in the Old Testament. And once the fullness has come, the lessons, as it were, come to an end. Yeah, we don't. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. You don't need the teacher anymore when you graduate, in a sense, right? Right. And that's that's part of what's being said in Hebrews. The When the new comes, when the new covenant is here, the old one is no longer required and it even becomes it becomes a snare and so god has to actually remove it which he does in the destruction right. of the temple yeah nehushtan the the bronze serpent became an object of uh, idolatry in the later days of israel yeah. so that hezekiah had to destroy it yet yeah. god commanded the the serpent to be made so the temple itself, right? I mean, that that's a reoccurring thing in the Old Testament, the temple, the temple, the temple. Well, we're going to, I'm going to destroy this temple then. And so that you can't have it as an idol. And then, you know, once the lesson, that lesson gets taught, then God allows for the rebuilding of a new temple. But even that temple, where is it now? It's gone, right? But the the heavenly temple remains open to us. Of course, that's invisible, but that's that's the whole that's the whole thing of the new covenant and the new testament right the the spiritual things which are superior do that which was seen yeah so when we're dealing then with christ carrying his own blood and actually making that sacrifice once for all you know what what is paul alluding to i mean what is what is he pointing towards yeah it could almost sound like there's some kind of you know what happens at the cross is is somehow a different sacrifice. I think what he's saying is Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he that is him going into heaven and offering his the sacrifice. I don't think I can't think of a of another spot unless maybe 
there somehow the ascension plays a part here, Zelwyn. What do you think? Well, the ascension, of course, is his coronation. You know, he to sit down in in triumph over his enemies. So, I mean, and I think in a real sense, we can say that this is Christ the King receiving, you know, the kingdom, that sort of thing. But I do think Christ the the priest as the priest carrying his own blood is. I mean, it is his his death, his atoning sacrifice on the cross. So even though we see that, I mean, that happened on Golgotha and the, at the place of the skull. I mean, there's you can go there and, and visit it to this day. Still, there was a simultaneous Jesus is at the same time offering his blood in heaven, right? That these are not distinct places. He doesn't have to do some kind of space travel you know, from the right. cross, his, it's not like his soul goes up into heaven and somehow he, you know, that's not what we're talking about here, but there's almost like an overlap. And as he's dying on the cross, he is at the same time offering himself there before his father in heaven. Well, and you have a symbol of that too in in the gospels themselves, which say that the, the curtain of the temple at the death of Christ was torn mm-hmm. from top to bottom. And so this this opening of the way so that there's no longer this division between the people and the most holy place because Christ has opened it with his blood and it can never be shut again. I mean, that's that's the point. Yeah, and we're, you know, the, the ripping of the curtain, you know, the temple is no more. We understand that. But what what Hebrews is so good with is saying that's that doesn't mean that there is no longer any temple. It just means right. we have access through Christ, right? through right. the blood of Jesus, we have access into the heavenly temple. And so, you know, if a person says, tries to use the fact that the temple is gone to say that they don't need the church anymore, it's like, well, I, I'm not quite sure <laughs> you understand <laughs> that just because the copy is gone, that doesn't mean you should, you know, stay away from the real thing. And that's even right. a point that Hebrews makes, right? Let us not give up assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. Because it's through the blood of Christ, right? There's the sacramental participation in the heavenly in the heavenly things, but also through through our prayers in His name, our prayers are actually coming to the throne of grace. And we should never pit like our private prayers against the public worship of the church. Speaking of prayers, then, since this is maybe another way to to tackle what Christ is doing as a priest. Hebrews also makes a big deal about Christ being our intercessor and yeah. also being the one who continually makes intercession on our behalf, you know, as as the high priest. Right. So what do we mean by intercession, David? Yeah, by intercession, we mean intercessory prayer, I think, predominantly, right? So you pray for someone else, for their benefit, for their good. Right. And this is actually quite an interesting thing because what we've described so far is the work of atonement, right? Christ makes right. atonement for us through his cross. But intercession continues. That's the language in, I think it's Hebrews 7 there. He can, he lives to make intercession for us. So in some way, Christ's priestly work continues in his, you know, at, as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. and. I think we can see a, a, an analogy for this or a picture in the Aaronic priesthood. You have the daily sacrifice that's made. Atonement is made through the, the blood of the lamb in the morning and evening sacrifices. But that wasn't the end of the service, right? So after the priest offers 
the the bloody sacrifice at the altar. He then goes in to the holy place and offers the incense offering, which would have been a representation. It was the ritual act that represented the prayers of the people being offered up to God. And the priest then serves as the the representative who is interceding for the people. And I don't know, it, uh, there's no record in Leviticus, which would be kind of the natural place of what the priest said when he offered the incense. I don't know if he had a, you know, if there was a prescribed prayer, I would imagine that there was. Think of just the way that our own liturgical rubrics are. There's prayers for every every part of the service, right? right. And so I, I would imagine that a similar thing would have happened in the Old Testament, that a general prayer, you know, pleading for God's mercy, for his grace, you know, for the fulfillment of his promises, for the people as a whole. I, I don't know what kind of prayer the priest would have offered, but I would imagine there was some kind of audible prayer there. And then uh, if you have that in mind, well, then you can see Jesus continues to intercede for us, even though he no longer has to offer, you know, his blood to make, you know, to make atonement, his priestly work continues. And this is a great comfort to us that he continues to pray for us, to intercede for us. And through that, then we are kind of encouraged to offer our prayers alongside of him. Yeah. Well, and I I think it's also worth pointing out here that the order is the important part because you have that you have to have the offering of the sacrifice, you have to have the the blood atonement followed by then the actual intercession. Mm-hmm. And you can't you can't switch those around, you can't neglect one or the other. It has to be in that order because it's only by blood that we have access to the Father at all, right? Yeah. And I think and I think one maybe kind of good example of this from the Old Testament is actually comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, where Samuel, himself a priest, is the, the Philistines are coming to attack Israel. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel offers up, it says, he took a nursing lamb, this is verse 9, and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. So we have that lamb given to God, a fairly young lamb too, which is, I think is an important point, point there. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. But notice the, that, that progression. After the sacrifice had been made, after the lamb had been offered up, Samuel then cries out to God in intercession, and the Lord responds to his prayer and, and delivers Israel from their enemies. And so I think there is, a, there is a real sense in which we could say that Christ's priesthood, having brought his blood into you know, the, the, most holy, the heavenly holy places, once and for all, never has to be repeated again, now continues his priesthood in that act of intercession, praying for us at all times to the Father on our behalf, which I think is, like you said, tremendous comfort. Yeah, and you can, I mean, there. this is not unique to Hebrews because what does it say in Romans? I think it's in 8, where the right. Spirit, now there, there's a connection here to the Spirit, but the Spirit intercedes for us. 
right? With groanings too deep for words, right? So those these are connected, the, the work of the Spirit and the priesthood of Christ. And, and even in Hebrews, that, that connection is made explicit, isn't it? Where it says right. that he offered himself through the eternal Spirit to the Father. So it doesn't really spell that out, and I kind of wish that it would, because that's a <laughs> kind of a fascinating thing to just kind of drop in. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, it's it's left for another time, I guess. Well, but I, I think it's it's worth saying here, though, that Christ, in this sense, continuing in his priesthood forever, at least as far as we can understand it, is engaged in prayer continuously. And the only reason why I think he didn't engage in prayer continuously during his earthly ministry was because of his, well, very real human limitations, right? He got tired. He needed to eat, just like we do. You know, we can't go on praying forever because, well, we we have things that we yeah. have to tend to. We have right. other callings, even though we are called to pray without ceasing. And yet, Jesus, now exalted at the right hand of God, is continuously engaged in prayer on behalf of his people so that we would receive the blessing of the Spirit, you know, to actually receive the Holy Spirit in, in these latter days as well. Yeah, and that's a good, that's, that's, I think that helps because it what you're what you're kind of guarding against there when you put it that way Zelwyn is that he's not offering a further sacrifice. Right? right? I think that's what, you know, maybe some some people are hearing this and it's a little bit odd. You know, I thought he said it is finished on the cross. He did. Right? The work of atonement is done. Redemption is finished or it's complete. But the the intercession that Christ continues to make, again, if you want to see it, it's in Hebrews 7, where it talks about how Christ as the eternal priest always lives to make intercession. And so we, I mean, that's a great comfort to us that he can save forever to the uttermost. He can save, he can save us. Right, right. And then also with that too, this idea of guarding against, yeah, he's not offering a further sacrifice, just as when we as spiritual priests, you know, carrying out that priesthood which we have been given, offer the sacrifice of prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, we are not offering up a bloody sacrifice, you know, so that we might crucify the Son of God all over again. Right. But we are offering up those things which, well, have been given to us and which we offer back to God, you know, that that spiritual, our spiritual lives, our holiness, which to which we have been called. So we don't want to think of Christ's intercession as being a further atonement, because that would, that would be like saying our prayers are a further atonement, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, we're kind of coming to the end here, David. So is there anything you want to, how do, how do you want to put a bow on this episode? <laughs> we've, we've come a long way. I, I think I would just reemphasize where we started, to be honest. Again, this is the, the central theme in Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. And uh, what you see is that his, his priestly work is a wonderful theme and a wonderful reality, I should maybe say it that way, of of the work of redemption, that he has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and that he now stands forever as our high priest. And uh, what that does is that it encourages, you have this supreme confidence and this supreme encouragement. Hebrews talk, talks about strong encouragement. Well, this is about as strong as you can get. You have this wonderful high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our every weakness, but who is also 
perfect and blameless and eternal in the heavens and both sides of that connection to us and also his supremacy above us give great confidence to the Christian. Amen. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, on facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Appold. God love you and God bless. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.